Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 56 of the Tartan Talk series, and joining us is Robert McNeil. Robert is a golf course architect, owns a golf course management company, and also even owns a golf course. This podcast is a fun one. We're going to discuss nine-hole courses, short courses, and Donald Ross. I really don't know what more we need to say in this introduction, but before we get going with Robert, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting the podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. We're glad that they've been on board as the sponsor of this podcast for nearly four years, and we're glad that Robert took some time to join us. Well, Robert, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the podcast, and there are so many great things to discuss here. And the, the first question I want to ask you is you learned the game at a nine-hole course in Massachusetts. That course might not be like any other nine-hole course in the country. How did spending your childhood at Whitensville Golf Club shape your career? For me, personally, I would have to say right place, right time. I was always, as a child, you know, some kids want to be a fireman. Oh, I wanted to be a golf course architect. Kind of weird at the time, you know. But in my backyard was Whitensville Golf Club. And literally, we would walk from school across the Mumford River, which is the water supply to the golf course, into the pro shop and onto the first tee every single day for as long as I can remember from maybe 12 or 13 years old till I graduated from high school. So Whitensville Golf Club is near and dear to me. Happened to be in the town I was born in and grew up in and happens to be one of the top nine hole Donald Ross golf courses country and some say the world. So it's been a pretty exciting journey from there uh, to have that in my backyard and be able to play golf and learn the game at that particular golf course. Did you play the holes in order, one to nine, or was there a, a different order that you played them? No, I played them one to nine. Okay. You kind of have to. You know, there's no there's no kind of way around it. You come to the first hole and you, you loop it around across the street to play holes three and four, and you come back and play five through nine on the uh, inside of the golf course along the Mumford River. It's uh, It's awesome. How would you describe the Ross routing and features of Whitensville Golf Club to our listeners who have never been there or may never go there? I think the simplicity of it is what's so intriguing. At least the, the think it's simple. It looks simple. And Ross was very good at that, making it look easier than it actually was or is. I mean, his, and this is consistent with a lot of his golf courses. In fact, most of the golf courses are put a premium on 150. 120, 130 yards into the green, and certainly the green itself and the green complex surrounds. That's where the game is on Ross Golf Courses. If you played any, you know that instantaneously that uh, a premium is put on your short game and your approach iron game. And that's, and Whitensville is no exception to that. But the simplicity of it really is probably what attracted me to, at the beginning when I was playing the golf course. As a beginner playing golf, it felt reasonably easy to play. But as I understood and learned more about the game, uh, and the idiosyncrasies and the, and the character and the strategies that were certainly inherent in that golf course, uh, I just became a gigantic fan. And, uh, and now I see it wherever I go on Ross courses, uh, that, that, uh, that premium on iron play. Yeah, that kind of goes into my next question. So you're 12, 13, 14 years old playing this golf course. You probably don't realize how special it is quite at the time. When do you make that transition from someone that's playing there with his friends or, or family to somebody that realizes that this is a place that I can study and maybe help me as I advance my career? I think as I probably got into my senior year in high school, we were we were a pretty good team uh, our senior year in high school. Wednesday was our home course. It was right across the street from the high school. 
Um, and as that year went along, uh, we all got to appreciate the golf course more and more uh, as that year went along. And I think that was the time, not that I took the step to become a golf course architect initially, because I didn't, I was, that was later in life. But um, at that point, uh, we, we certainly knew it was kind of ingrained by the membership, by the town itself and the history that this place was special. But as teenagers, you know, you don't you don't embrace that stuff too much until it's uh, it's right there in front of you and you're you're kind of appreciating it every day. So that, that's kind of when the transition happened. Probably 17, 18 years old, and we're we're vying for the state championship in the state of Massachusetts, which we won, by the way. You know, that's when it became something very special. And and I knew, and in, in Massachusetts at the time, certainly I didn't know at the time that we were surrounded by so many great Ross courses. Um, uh, in the in the region, not only Massachusetts but throughout New England, which I've had the honor of of working on many of them over the last twenty five years. Yeah, at what point do you decide that golf course architecture could be a career path for you? And what have you learned from studying just the Ross courses near where you grew up? It's an interesting story. I decided the day I got married. So the day I got married, the next day, uh, my wife and I flew to the University of Texas in Arlington to start the landscape architecture program there. I already had a business degree from Bryant University here in Rhode Island. And um, during my courtship, if you will, of my wife, this dream started to start to materialize. And I decided, uh, well, there's only way, one way to get there. It's not going to be my business degree. I've got to get a landscape architecture degree. I have to specialize in golf course design. I have to put myself in the right place with the right people. So we um, packed up a U-Haul the day after we got married and started grad school. I ended up ultimately at Ohio State University, which was another godsend, another mecca of golf. And away we went. So that was uh, almost 30 years ago. It was 30 years ago. Oh, my goodness. I have so many questions based just on that answer. But first off, does does your wife play golf? Does she know what you were getting into when you, you said you wanted to become a golf course architect? Uh, she she kind of knew at the time, but uh, no, she doesn't play golf. She wants to, but she doesn't really play. Not as much as me, that's for sure. But yeah, she, uh, she's she been my biggest supporter from day one and still is today of all the things we've created together. So she's, uh, yeah, she was on board. She knew what she was getting into. <laughs> so Columbus is just two hours down the road from our Northeast yeah. Ohio offices. That, that had to be a great environment to be in as somebody that wanted to become a, a golf course architect and heck there's a, a pretty special Ross course just five minutes from campus there's several uh, there's several yeah so going to Columbus was you know again not knowing exactly what I was getting myself into uh, was another godsend it's just another right place right time uh, I was there this was 1990 1991 when I got there to start grad school and you know, in that in that market, you have such great golf courses, and you have you had Mike Hurdson was also there at the time. There was other golf course architects at the time, and there was also a construction boom at the time uh, of golf courses. So I was fortunate uh, to hit a new golf course that was being built. Jack Nicklaus designed a new Albany Country Club, and jumped on that crew right when I got there and worked there for three years from inception all the way through construction of 27 holes with the Nicholas team and the, and the uh, maintenance team there and construction team there for all those years, putting that property together. So that was, again, timing was everything. 
and at Ohio State, you know, as, as you know, with, with golf course architecture, there is no real no program. You can't just go somewhere and say, I'm going to get a degree in golf course architecture. As many of us in this industry have done, we've kind of created it on our own within the within the curriculum and the educational environments we've been in. We've kind of dabbled in a lot of different things that, that are all part of golf course architecture, landscape architecture being the foundation. But that, that uh, that's what I did at Ohio State, created my own program. I was the only one. We had a five-person graduate class uh, in landscape architecture when I was there, and I was the only one working on golf course design as my as my track. Uh, and that, again, worked out. I, I did get a chance to work with Mike Hurdon for a bit also as an intern. And so I got a little bit of everything while I was there, which was just awesome. I love Ohio. I'm partial to Ohio. I am a Buckeye. I am. My son went to Ohio University, just graduated a couple of years ago. So I spent a lot of time in Ohio and uh, uh, have a fondness for it. We have a lot of young listeners to this podcast who are working their way up through the industry or getting ready to go to school. How do you create your own academic program, Robert? Well, I think you you got to understand, at least you have to understand initially what you want to do. But, you know, there has to be a foundational piece of it, which for me was landscape architecture. But I took classes in civil engineering, in geology, in architecture, in land planning, uh, in hydrogeology, in soil science. So all of those things kind of surrounded my landscape architecture foundational courses to create what I felt. I mean, this is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of making it up, I guess. What I felt would be the best core courses for me to have uh, some success and to take that first step into golf course architecture. And you know, I'm not the, I'm not the first one to do this. This goes back to you know Trent Jones and you know, all the guys that have come along and kind of created their own way. But you need to you need to have all those pieces uh, in your pocket in your tool belt, if you will. Uh, on every property, and that's that was another another uh, godsend to be at Columbus, uh, Ohio State, which gave me the opportunity to do it. Um, not every school would. There was some flexibility within the program, and uh, I was able to put it together myself. And you eventually become a a business owner, and your business has multiple tentacles right now. How important was the the business degree that you got before Huge. you even went to Ohio State? Huge. You know, I would I would recommend and I do to my kids and I would recommend to anybody that wants to go into anything to get a business degree of some sort or have some academic uh, experience and world real world experience uh, running managing being part of a an operating business to understand you know I, w- I would and I would think a lot of other golf course architects would say the same you know almost 40 percent of what I do is running the business running the business, the marketing, the, um, the behind-the-scenes stuff, the, the financial part of it, the, uh, all of the, the proposals, the, you know, all of those things, casing work, trade shows, uh, you know, speaking with you, all these, all these things are as important uh, in running any business. Golf course architects is just a, what I do, but um, it's, it's critical. I, I think it's critical. So you started working at New Albany Country Club for the superintendent, Tony Mancuso. Is that, is that right? I worked pretty much full-time at New Albany Country Club. went to school full-time at Ohio State. We did both because the timelines were exactly the same. They, they began New Albany Country Club construction in 1991, and I was there in 1991. I started working with Tony. Uh, it's funny you've mentioned that. And 
Tony it was a great guy to be a, be with at the time. We had an incredible crew. He taught me so much. He taught me everything that I needed to know, at least at that time, about maintenance and construction of a new golf course. Uh, it was it was purely hands on. We were taking something from nothing to a finished, maintained, manicured, saleable, playable um, piece of ground. Uh, so he was he was instrumental as well as his superintendents that were under him. Scott Reynolds, another another guy, he's out of St. Louis now, but was went to Ohio State as well. Uh, another guy that was instrumental to uh, just being with those guys for those three years was just um, a big piece of what I needed to, to move along in the, in the business. Yeah, and for our listeners that aren't familiar with Tony, he's now in, in South Korea. He's the director of agronomy at the club at Nine Bridges, which hosts the PGA Tours, CJ Cup. So uh, pretty interesting how, how global it all, all becomes. It, it has, and it is. I, I haven't seen Tony in several years, but uh, I know he was in some at some high profile Bell Reeve and other high profile places over the, over his career. Just a great guy, just an easy guy to to get along with, but certainly easy guy to ask questions to, and and all the success to Tony. So let's circle this back to where we started this conversation with with nine hole courses. How important is it here in 2021 after so many people rediscovered? or discover the game in 2020 to have those nine hole short course offerings and tell our listeners about your work with those types of golf courses. Sure. Sure. I think it's critical. I do. Um, and I think the data is yet to be seen. I mean, nine holes have always been kind of a, uh, the stepchild of the 18 hole golf course for some reason, but I think this 2020, uh, and, and even before that, but 2020 has really caused a disruption uh, in the golf business. And I think what's happened, you know, I, I, everybody had a good year, ironically, in the golf business. If you didn't, you missed something. But most courses did very well this year as far as rounds go and introduction of new players to the game. Um, the key right now is how do you hold on to those players? What percentage of them are going to stay in the game? We're going to lose some. There's going to be some some loss uh, based on, you know, the rest of the world coming back to reality and other opportunities for people to do things. But I think, you know, for me, you know, witnessing it firsthand on the courses that I own and operate as well as my design work um, this past year, and we, we promote this, we've been promoting this for years, uh, how to grow the game, grow the game opportunities, different types of facilities to grow the game. I think it's working. It's growing. Um, the, the types of people that are coming to the game, women, younger people uh, of all walks of life uh, coming into the game, making it fun. The time consumption is obviously much less than a nine-hole golf course. You can treat it and give it some flexibility to make it feel different if you play it twice. Um, it can be short, short. It can be long, long. It can be whatever you want it to be on a much smaller footprint. Um and I think the simplicity of it, and this this goes back to Whitensville, quite honestly, Guy, it does. Because if you go to Whitensville today, it's not a whole lot different than it was when I was there 30, 40 years ago. The only difference is the golf course has gotten better and better and better over time because of agronomics and taking down trees, which is, was a good thing. Um, so all those things are, are still in place there at Whitensville. So. It gave me an opportunity there. I want to give people an opportunity to the properties that we manage and operate and design. Uh, and I think 
it's it's again it's yet to be seen it's hard to get the data back on this stuff but i think 2021 will be a good indicator of how successful we were in 2020 in keeping keeping those players in the game and then growing it from there i'm pretty excited about it robert you were in on the short course movement and the nine hole movement before a lot of other people in the industry at what point in your career did you realize that those courses would be a viable part of your business? Well, I think the the overbuild, you know, as you get through the 80s and 90s, early 90s, the overbuild of 18-hole golf courses and the saturation of markets and the saturation of land uh, was a was a red alert. Uh, so that was in the probably right when it began, the mid '90s, and by the time the uh, early 2000s came, mid 2000s, and, and then the crash and all of that, and golf courses closing one after the other, at that point, it, it certainly became clear that this was a viable option for a lot of existing golf courses. It changed, uh, you know, restructure from 18 to nine, and repurpose some of the land uh, and/or add on to. Uh, existing golf courses with short game and practice and teaching opportunities on small parcels of land project we did at Mendham, the links at Mendham, which was which was kind of the most one of the most unique little things I've ever done on, on about an acre and a half, two acres of land. Uh, the, the the way they used it, this club uses the property is just awesome. It's a, it's, a, it's three holes with with nine tees, and they you, and you can play it any multiple different ways. And use it for teaching and clinics and kids and adults and get fun games. And the guys would go out there and just have games for hours on the uh, on the three-hole course. So uh, there's a lot of different ways to use small parcels of land and/or nine holes. Uh, I don't think, and I would disagree. I don't. I don't think that something different than nine holes. There's a lot of talk about twelve holes, ten holes, thirteen holes, six holes. All, all these other things. Uh, I think are I think are great. I don't think they're a viable business option um, unless they're coupled with something else. Uh, but a nine hole, and I'm I'm a testament to it. Nine hole golf course can stand alone and be very viable and exciting and fun and different and challenging for any type of player. So I, you know, I'm an advocate. I've always been. It was kind of born into me when I started, and now I'm seeing. You know, we're doing. Three, four, nine-hole golf, nine-hole projects right now. Well, you're the perfect person to ask about owning a nine-hole golf course. You and your wife own Kings Crossing Golf Club in Rhode Island. When did you buy the course, and what is it like managing a, a nine-hole property? I bought the golf course in 2014, and it was a. Uh, it had some history. It was it was a kind of a rundown men's club, if you will. They had about 50 members. Uh, aging members, the golf course was not up to speed as, to, as, as far as quality and agronomics go. It had been let go for a little bit, um, not for a little bit, for a while. And I just saw an opportunity, and, I, and the irony was it was eight miles from my house in the town I live in now in Rhode Island, um, and I just saw a pure opportunity. So what we, what we did here, and again, I bought this solely to grow the game of golf. I really did to become that kind of a business. 
because when we bought it, it was it was certainly not going to be successful in its current model of just serving a small demographic. So when we bought the golf course, we instantly, and this is not for everybody and every operator to, to swallow, but when we bought the golf course, we opened the doors. We opened the floodgates for people to just give them a financial way, a very affordable way, to get into the game of golf. And I can tell you right from the beginning, we went in the first three years, we went from the 50 members that I bought to 3,000 members in three years. And the simplicity of it was opening the door um, and letting people in. And, and just like we're, we're looking at today, how can we keep those members? Right now we're down to about 1,200 members, which is fine with me. Um, but that membership, I think at one time, and I, I don't have a real data on this, but I think at one time we had the most women at one golf course, maybe in the country. I don't know. We had over 400 members. And right now we have about 300 women members of our golf course. So that demographic alone has been awesome to both uh, see grow and to uh, um, uh, provide you know, lessons to. I mean, it's, it's created a whole different culture. At this club, so there's there's so many pieces of a of a small night golf course that you can manipulate and 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 create new revenue streams and you know all kinds of different things on this property that we've that I've seen. And it's you know it's a work in progress. It's you know you go to sleep at night with a little knot in your stomach sometimes. I'm going to get to the next you know next piece of this journey, and uh, but I can't say enough about what our staff and has created here and and I'm taking what we're do, doing here and kind of talking it up to other developers and and um, and other properties. What's the day-to-day maintenance and management of the course like and do you use some of the principles of simplicity that you learned at Whitensville to to manage King's Crossing? Yeah, good question. Um, I would say one thing you need to do as an owner is 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 decide what you're going to be. So I decided that we're going to be every man's club here. We're going to be. It's not going to be Augusta. It's not going to be Whitensville Golf Club. It's going to be a very good because I'm because the affordability of it is got to be considered. Right, so it's going to be a very good golf course. It's going to be much better than it ever was, and it is right now. Greens are as, as good as any greens uh, around here, uh, but we're getting better every year. So it's a it's a very good golf course agronomically, um, but for what your our membership is is paying to join here and all the uh, other you know cultural and and entertainment stuff they're getting on the golf course and in the club is is well worth it. So we, we took we took that approach and I guess that's any developer, what do you what do you want to have? What can you afford to have? What kind of budget do you have? And let's create the best we can create with that. And that's what we've done here. I think we've created I, I call it the Applebee's of golf. That's what I call what we have here. It's it's kind of the, the cheers of golf. Where everybody knows your name. It's an it's a neighborhood feeling. And I think this this model can be considered or talked about in different places it's a very community feeling concept you have me uh, ready to jump on a, a plane right when it gets warm out and come <laughs> up and experience this one one last question about being a, a golf course owner how busy was 2020 for for you 
uh, busiest year we've ever had. And I think everybody's saying that, at least all my clients that I'm working for have had the busiest year they've ever had. We're up 20%, which is about a across-the-board number uh, for operations. But the beauty of it from, from an architecture standpoint, or the, the benefit of it, is that a lot of private clubs all of a sudden have money <laughs> that they didn't have before, that they weren't intending to have or expecting to have. A lot of it came out of cart rentals and additional memberships because people were just trying to find a place to be uh, in the pandemic that was safe and, and outside. Uh, so, you know, we've had a lot of work in 2020. We've been busy all the way through it. I haven't really skipped a beat uh, in 2020 as far as operations go. In fact, we've probably been as busier than we've ever been, from even from a design standpoint, because of that. Because clubs, even relationships we've had for years and years and years, have uh, have banked some of the money that they've they've uh, reaped from this pandemic, uh, unfortunately, ironically, however you want to call it, and they're putting it back into the golf courses. So uh, I think we've all we've all seen the benefit. Now what do we do? Now now what do we do? Speaking of one of the projects you're working on, you're working on a course, and this is a great name, called The Hoot, at a resort yep. called Owl's Nest in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. What is the project all about, and how are you going to make this course, I guess, a hoot to play? What Owl's Nest Resort is, Owl's Nest Resort has been, has been active for since the mid-'90s. Uh, they built an 18-hole golf course there. That was designed by Mark Mungem, excellent golf course. Uh, Nicholas had come in and done some renovation to the bunkering on the golf course. So it's a very, you know, New Hampshire mountain golf course. So that's, that's part of the property. Uh, we were brought on board to develop the rest of it. So we're not only doing a 9 old golf course, we're doing hotels, we're doing a huge recreational area, we're doing it. We just built a 10-acre lake uh, to service the property and the golf course. But the hoop is, you know, it's kind of sitting on the leftover land. But for me, the leftover land was perfect for golf. It's, there's no trees. It's an old gravel operation. So we're building nine quite unique, quite exceptional visually and strategically and awesome nine holes. It's, it's really what we're doing. We're kind of carving it right out of the gravel pits that's, that's there. Uh, we have... Uh, carte blanche to do whatever we want to do on this on this routing within the routing we've created. So we're uh, we're really creating some unique strategies around the greens. Uh, we've given it tremendous flexibility, short to long, so you can play the golf course from 50 yards to 250 yards on some holes. Um, and it's 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 going to be quite unique when it's done. It'll open up next probably next fall. Another one of your unique projects is you designed an 18-hole par-3 course that I believe can be played also as a nine-hole championship course at the Preserve. Is, yes. is, is that right? T tell our listeners about that concept. Yeah, the Preserve, if, if you haven't heard about the Preserve, go to thepreserveri.com and, and just look at what they've done on this property. We were brought in in 2013, and this is a good story because it kind of puts me in my place. We were brought in by the developer. He had bought a an old property that was owned by a casino. In fact, he had designed an 18-hole golf course on this property originally uh, back in, 19, in the mid-1990s. In mid so he, my, the developer that called me that I met with 
developed 18 holes. It had some history. He had some success at the beginning. And then he sold it to a local casino uh, out of Connecticut that took it over and ran it till about 2007. And then they built their own golf course. And then uh, he bought it back from them for pennies on the dollar. And But the golf course had been sitting, the, the property had been sitting fallow for, uh, at the time, six years. So it was overgrown. The, go- the old golf course was still, you could kind of find it, if you would. There was greens out there. There were tees. But the grass was, you know, four feet tall and so forth. But the first thing he said to me as a golf course architect, which put me in my place, was golf is about number six on my list of priorities for this property, just so you know. <laughs> and that's how we started our conversation. And and it became it quickly became a high priority because it was the first amenity that we built on the property. Um, and it's 18 holes. We've kind of we kind of used we didn't use we, we it was, it's a brand new golf course. We used some of the property that was the old golf course, but we re, everything's new and rebuilt. No holes, anything like the hole you just played before. Again, it stretches from 100 yards to 240 yards. The topography is tremendous. Rock outcroppings, sand, sand, gravel. It's it's got every every element you can imagine on a on a, on a par three golf course. Um, and the flexibility of it for nine holes is is really just a matter of the way we mow the fairways and the way we mow the landing areas, but from hole to hole. So you can play nine holes within the 18-hole routing. Uh, so it's been a great success. It's won awards. It's it's been fun to see the whole property develop because it's much more than golf right now. It's it's a pretty spectacular sporting club here in Rhode Island. Very unique. We're huge fans of short courses and par three courses at, at, at golf course industry. We even have a series bi monthly just called short course stories. One thing I've always wondered is how do you create variety in a golf course where every hole is a par three? Well, I think the land has to dictate some of that. Uh, and we've been fortunate. You know, so if we compare, just use the two we just talked about, the preserve and then the, the hoop, you know, preserve gave us all the topography we could handle. Uh, ironically, here in Rhode Island, yes, it's, there was a lot of movement. Tons of rock outcroppings, highs and lows, 50, 60 foot elevation drops, 100 foot drops, water, everything we needed to create a uniquely challenging golf course and uniquely different golf holes was in place. So that that kind of made it easy uh, at the preserve. At the hoop, it's 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 like it's a blank canvas. So now it's it's really standing there in the field drawing. The holes we want to create, creating them as we go, and creating the strategy and look as we go along. Again, utilizing some of the the golf course at the Hoot is a very natural bleeding golf course. When I say bleeding golf course, the golf course is bleeding into the natural landscape around it. So the bunkering is formal, then it's not. The green surrounds are formal, then they're not. Uh, quickly getting into getting into the natural surrounds. So that's that in itself will create some drama and some visual uniqueness to the property and character. Uh, and that's intentional. And then, uh, and then with the strategy of the golf, each hole we'll, we'll, we'll do what we got to do. And we're creating some really neat stuff. We've gotten three holes built right now. Again, none of them are anywhere near like each other, but they're, uh, 
but they're quite unique in their own sense. In addition to these projects, you also do restoration work, and you've had a chance to recently restore a Donald Ross course at, at Kernwood Country Club. What was that like for you? How many Donald Ross courses have you worked on, and what's your methodology for restoring a Donald Ross course? Yeah, we've done about five or six Ross courses. We start from the beginning, usually. I mean, restoration is kind of a... It's an interesting term, how you want to look at it. To restore a golf course exactly to what it was is not always the case. Uh, the club really dictates, in a lot of cases, what they want to see. At Kernwood Country Club, which I've been working at for almost 20 years, uh, finally we got to the bunkering. You know, here, and this is part of the restoration, it's kind of not, bunkering is, is really a lot of the stuff that's talked about uh, in the trades, but at, at Kernwood Country Club, like all the courses we work at for a long period of time, we're able to uh, instill and instigate change and enhancement with tree removal and management, with all of the agronomics of fairway contouring, green expansion, tee positioning, um, grassing heights, you know, rough positioning, all of those things preempted the bunker renovation we just completed. And so that's all part of the restoration. So that, all that has to be in place uh, to make it all work properly in the end. And I think the restoration of the bunkers, we had at, at Kernwood, we had Ross's original plans for nine of the golf holes, which we utilized, we scaled, we um, in the field measured uh, exactly where some of these uh, elements were. Some of them had been lost. Uh, several bunkers were, were eliminated that we brought back. Uh, the styling was gone in the existing bunkers. Only a few had uh, what the real styling uh, was when it was originally built. We had some photography from the 20s and 30s, which was awesome. So you just use everything you can to get the, uh, to get the feel and character of the time that you're trying to hit with the restoration. And that's what we do at most of our golf courses. We just start that way. Whether it's a Ross or not, whether it's a, you know, a golf course that's got some history to it, we always want to look back and grab the most important pieces of that history and see if we can integrate them into the, into the renovation. That's what happened at Kernwood. turned out great. Ross did a ton of work in New England. In fact, the state you live in, Rhode Island, there are a lot of Donald Ross design golf yeah. courses. Why are these golf courses still so beloved today? Well, I think I'll go back to the, one of the first comments it made was the simplicity of the design, the incredible routings, um, which are just, I mean, that, that was, his, was, his, was his powerhouse. I mean, he was a master router of golf courses, and that's what you feel and see. So you're never, you're never uncomfortable. You're just going along, and, and you're presented with the strategy. I think, you know, the green complexes and all those elements we talked about before, uh, iron play, short game play, that's consistent from course to course. But the, the, the beauty of the routings, the capture of the – you know, the, the best parts of the land. Of course, these guys were given carte blanche in a lot of these properties where they could, you know, push and pull. But New England's no easy place to build anything. 
I can tell you that. And he was able to, you know, just find golf holes within the landscape like no other at the time. So uh, that's that's why I think they endure. Uh, they're not they're not silly. They're not quirky. They're classic, and that's that's why they endure. Okay, I'm going to give you a chance to brag about where you live. How awesome is the golf in Rhode Island? The golf in Rhode Island is awesome. There's nothing, uh, you know, we're, I want to keep it quiet because it's, you know, we're kind of a little gem over here and we don't want everybody to come here. But, uh, no, it's it's just great. In fact, we just got a commission to work at Newport Country Club, which is, you know, one of the top 100 courses in the country, right down the street here. And, it, you know, it's it's been a blessing to have that course here. But I could go on and on about Sakonet and Nisquamakit and and so many hidden gems, uh, Point Judith, and it goes on and on and on and on. Um, there's, there's there's probably at least 40 golf courses right here in Rhode Island that are exceptional, exceptional, historic and exceptional. Um, so we're blessed. We're blessed, and I I do my best to get around to to see them all too. Well, we asked you that question toward the end of the podcast so we didn't give the secret away at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) good a few last things here what type of expand the game opportunities do you see yourself and other golf course architects receiving over the the course of the next five to ten years well i it's 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 hard to say i think the game has to change a little bit i think there has to be some flexibility to existing properties so we're doing some of that kind of stuff when I say that, I mean creating creating golf courses within golf courses or creating golf products within a golf course, um, creating golf courses within practice ranges. You know, you have it, the property you have is what you have. So, what how how many ways can we present this property to provide those players that are in that grow the game category an opportunity to play? and not be encumbered by the difficulty of the game and the challenges of time and all those other things. Um, so we're, we're a part of that. I think what happened with Top Golf, I think that's a big piece of what's, what's coming down the road, and I support that 1,000%. It's, it's feeding golf courses, players, and hopefully that continues to grow. Uh, so there's, I think you just got to stay out of the box here. We're going to stay out of the box and not get – uh, too complacent with uh, with 2020 and the way we think it's going to go forward. So uh, we need to we need to keep keep the ball rolling here. You live and work in one of the most heavily populated parts of the country. Are we starting to see land use issues placed on golf courses, and are they going to be forced to get condensed a bit because of the demand for land where you live? Uh, it's happening slowly. Mm-hmm. It's happening organically, really. I mean, it's I think. I think most architects would agree that a purge was not, was needed uh, in the golf business. Um, the closures, though, are unfortunate, are creating opportunities for other golf courses to succeed. Um, but like I said before, there are these, you know, I, I see a lot of this, 18 down to 9, 9 down to nothing, or 9 down to a practice facility or a different type of use, golf use. Uh, you know, all of those things are happening. So, you know, and, and and they're not happening just here. I mean, they're happening in a lot of places. You know, we are, we don't see, you don't see 
a new 18-hole golf course is being built very much anywhere, really, but certainly in the Northeast, very, very few. You may see them built on top of an existing golf course, but you don't see a new 200-acre parcel of land being you just you don't you just don't see it that much right now. And last thing, how rewarding has it been to help the game of golf in the Northeast with the different jobs and companies that you have? It's an honor. It's an honor. I you know I look at this and, and my wife gets mad sometimes. I don't I don't feel like I need I should get paid to do what I do. It's sometimes I don't, but uh, <laughs> it's. It's just an honor, and it's just a, it's a fun thing to watch. And when you have, you know, a little dream when you're 14 years old and it comes out to happen the way you kind of envisioned it, what else can you ask for? You know, what else can you ask for? So I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty uh, excited about what we've done and certainly looking ahead. Can't wait to see what's coming. Well, Robert, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for taking – the time to join the podcast and thanks for everything you've done to, to make golf a better game. Awesome. Thanks guy.